Um, hey, I want to, before we dive into the message this morning, uh, there's moments as a pastor where I get to shepherd us as a congregation uh, in regard to things that are happening in the world uh, around us. And, uh, and there's a couple of things that are taking place uh, right now that, you know, you, you hear the news, you listen to the news, and uh, there can be place for discouragement and fear to creep in. Um, you know, we've, we've heard about what's happening in China and with the coronavirus. Um, I did hear about people, there was a report that people were stopping, they, they weren't buying Corona beer anymore. <laughs> it's safe to drive through the city of Corona, that's okay. <laughs> Got to pay attention to the details, right? <laughs> but things like this can really start producing fear. And it's important for us to remember that our prayer is power, powerful and effective, and that God is present to move. And so we, we can be in prayer about that and not live in fear of that. But the other thing that happened, in fact, a week ago was uh, Kobe Bryant and, and the loss of all of those that were with him on that helicopter, including his daughter. And um, there, there's been outpourings this week of, of love and, and remembrance. Uh, the, the Lakers game this week, they, they gave a tribute at that. And uh, just a, a powerful time. But what I want to speak to, though, is this. It's been s- surprised to see on Facebook some of the n- negativity. And as people would post things about Kobe, some of the responses to that, my heart was just breaking. And I felt like it was appropriate to take a minute to just shepherd us as the body of Christ, to say how we respond to things that happen in the world is important. People are watching. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. What he doesn't say is this, tell people why, why, why they shouldn't be mourning. Tell people or ask them, well, why are you grieving? You didn't know him. You didn't have a relationship with him. That's not our place. Our place as the body of Christ is to love people and to walk with them through difficulty. And so if you have someone in your life who is struggling with the loss of, of Kobe Bryant or, 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 or has been impacted by them, rather than walking in a place of... Okay, thank you, Siri. <laughs> so, yeah... Thank you for that, Siri. Appreciate that. Um, find ways to extend grace and mercy and compassion to, to mourn with people. People grieve in different ways and will feel different things. And, and we have an opportunity to extend the love of God in the midst of tragedy. I've, I've had people ask me this week about, you know, the goodness of God. How, you know, it's really challenging my, my view of how good God is. And I think, well, it's, it's tragic. It was tragic for sure. But we, we have to remember that there are thousands of people every day around the world who die, many of them tragically. And God knows their name. And he knows their circumstance. And he is no less loving or present in the midst of it. The reminder for us is how we respond as the body of Christ. And so I just wanted to offer that as an encouragement to all of the. This is not in response to something one of you said or one of, one of you did. I think just as we watch our world, though, and we watch how the culture responds, it's important for us as believers 
to, to model Jesus. And so it's in times like this that that becomes really important, okay? All right, let's dive into the message this morning. We're continuing our series entitled God Is, and uh, as we've mentioned over these last few weeks, this is our theme for the year, and this will be kind of the overarching theme for every message, almost every message that we have this year. Uh, And tied to, to that is our Lectio Divina journal. Uh, If you've not received one of these uh, as of yet, we have them available at the Information Center. They're totally free of charge. You can grab one. Um, And and what it is, is in here that the passages that we're reading align with the sermons that are being preached on Sunday. So you'll notice if you were in the reading this week, and I I, I pray that you've been encouraged as you've been seeking the Lord in the Word of God, that you'll hear the passages, some of the passages that are referenced in uh, this week's reading will will be in the message today. And And the hope is this, to reinforce for you the things that God is speaking to you. Do you know that God speaks to you? Some of you. God speaks to you. And he speaks to us. One of the ways that he speaks to us is through his word. And so we need to be engaged in his word to hear his voice. And so if you've not received one of these yet, please grab one after church. Uh, If you do have yours with you, you can take notes. There's a place for uh, notes each week that, that you can write down. So we're talking about God is, and we've been asking this question, who is God? It's a big question. Because he's a big God. Who is God? And it's important for us to know, to ask things like, why do I believe what I believe about God? Where does my belief system come from? What shaped it? What formed it? And how do I know that what I believe about God is true? If you've never asked that question, you need to start asking that question. How do I know that what I believe is, is accurate? Would you agree that's important? It's important to believe right things about who God is. And if it is true, how does it affect my life? Is it affecting my life? Do I live my life any differently based on what I believe? Another important question, which I believe, and I know in my own experience, I don't think Christians ask nearly enough. And so, we ask, we call these questions, this process, the work of theology. Theology just being this, theos being the, the word for God and logos, the, the word, the speech. What we say and what we declare about who God is, that is theology, and we are all theologians. Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 13, he says to them, who do the people say that I am? And then he asked them, who do you say that I am? And so our goal this year is to keep asking this question, or being asked this question rather by Jesus. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that God is? In every dimension, in every aspect of your life. Well, we spent the last few weeks gaining a clear picture of God's awesomeness, His majesty, His power, His sovereignty, His beauty, His might, His transcendence, His imminence. And all of these big words, that it, it, this theme through, through the last few weeks of reading has really focused on the bigness and the awesomeness of God. But today I want to talk about this, that God is knowable, that God is knowable, this amazing, awesome, majestic, 
present throughout the universe, beyond space and time, God is knowable. In fact, what we just celebrated by receiving the bread in the cup is the ultimate expression of the knowability of God because he has made him known. Jacques and Christy, by the way, I had to compose myself. That was so powerful. Thank you for leading us this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 27, we read this. We've got to go back to the beginning. It says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move on the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. We call this Imago Dei. We are fashioned, we are created in the image of God. You have been made in the image of God. Every single one of us, every human being that has ever been born, who will ever ever be born, everyone who will walk on the face of this earth has been fashioned in the likeness of God. We bear His likeness. This is critical for us to understand, and I've talked about this a lot in our church And I keep coming back to it because it is foundational to our faith. So watch the shift. We're looking at this God who is awesome and loving and majestic and over everything and and has all of the power and all of the answers and, and it's just no words can even describe. And then he says this, and you're made in my image. A lot of people I talk to, and including myself, I don't always feel awesome or majestic, (laughs) right? But there is something in who I am and in who you are that is designed to reflect that aspect of who God is. Now, are you God? Right? Some people will make the leap and say, well, I'm made in the image of God, therefore I... No, 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 no. The image of something, the reflection of something is not the thing. But we are supposed to display who God is to the world. In our homes, in our families, in our community, everywhere we go. And this is not something that's just said once in Scripture. This is repeated throughout Scripture. It's important to pay attention in the Bible when a theme is repeated over and over when something is brought up more than once. Now, if the Bible says something once, it's definitely important. But we need to pay attention. If God sees fit to put it in his word multiple times, something should just kind of pique our interest and go, wait, I need to press into that a little bit more. I want to read a few passages that uh, remind us about the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul writes this, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Jesus, who comes into the world, takes on flesh, continued to reflect the image of God and the glory of God. Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn over all creation. Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Listen to this. Which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So there's this part of us that gets damaged and broken and stops reflecting the glory of God. And Paul says, when we come to Jesus, we can put off that old self. We don't have to live that way anymore. We can put on this new self, and this new self is being renewed in its knowledge of who Jesus is, of who God is, of its creator. In James 3, 9, James writes this, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness he goes on to say he goes this should not be the case that in one moment we would praise God with these lips with these voices and in the next that we would tear people down with our words that we you might be going well I don't I don't curse I'm not I'm not a cursor I don't no, what he's saying is that there's power in the in the tongue there's power in our words and we can either build up or tear down and James is addressing this, saying, how, how could we praise God? God, you are awesome, you're majestic, you're wonderful, you're beautiful, you're everything to me. And then turn around and tear people down with, that same lips, with those same lips. And he's saying this, the same God that you praise, that person that you were tearing down is made in his likeness. This should not be the case. So we are made in the image of God. So why this emphasis on asking who is God? Why is this so important? Because if we don't ask the question, we won't realize, we won't understand. And I'm not saying like, I'm not talking about, a, oh yeah, I heard that somewhere. I'm talking about a deep knowing. We will not know and understand that we are made in the image of God. It goes a little deeper than this though. If I want to know who I am, if I want to understand what makes me, me, if I want to understand why I, I've been created the way that I've been created, what, what the purpose of my life is, what the meaning of life, right? That's like the big question, people. What's the meaning of my life? Why am I here? It has to start with me gazing on the face of God. Because when I look at the likeness of God and I understand who he is, I will begin to understand who I am. I would suggest this morning that we cannot understand who we are apart from knowing who he is. It's impossible. Mankind has searched, philosophers have written, and books have been, volumes of books have been written around this subject. But at the end of the day, apart from knowing God, we cannot understand who we are because he is our image. We are made in His image. We are meant to reflect Him. So let me make this practical. Who has a mirror in their house? <laughs> All of you have a mirror in your house. Come on. <laughs> All of us have a mirror, right? You have one in your bathroom. You probably have one in your bedroom. We have the, like, the closet doors, the full-length closet door mirrors. So we have those uh, you might have one in your hallway. I, I like the one that's in your car on the little visor. You know what it's called? 
the vanity mirror. It just calls it like it is, <laughs> right? Your vanity mirror so you can look at yourself. Maybe you have one in your purse, right? We even look at ourselves in the reflection of a window when we're walking down the street. We do. Or when you, uh, when you look at a group photo, someone posts a photo on like Facebook, they take a group picture. Who's the first person you look for? Yourself. Come on, you all do it too. I'm not the only. We look for ourselves. Oh, I want to see me. And why? why? Why do we look in mirrors? Now, I mean, of course, we could like analyze and go, well, we are vain and we are self-centered. No, we look at ourselves because we want to make sure that nothing is out of place. Did they get my good side, right? Is my hair, okay, is, <laughs> is anything out of place? I look at myself in the mirror because I want to make sure that before I go out in public that I'm presentable, that I'm put together, that, right, that nothing's, nothing's messed up or there's nothing on my face. A few weeks ago, I, I was wa- working on my car, and, uh, and um, my, I was under my car, so like 20 years of caked on dirt ended up on my face. And uh, I don't know, like this is one of those satisfying things when you wash your hands, you take a shower when you're really dirty, and, and it's just like, oh, you get that clean. And I was like, oh, I feel so good. I had all this grease. And I got out of the shower, and I dried off, and I realized I'd washed my face and missed the section right here on my neck. So when I looked in the mirror, it's just this big brown, black, grease streak. And I was like, oh, I'm thankful for the mirror. I gotta go finish getting cleaned up. We look at ourselves so we can make sure that everything is where it's supposed to be and that we're looking okay. Is there part of that that's vanity? Sure, but I think most of us, it's just very practical, right? Why would we want to gaze upon the face of God? First and foremost, to know him, to love him, to worship him, to adore him. That's, that's where we start. But secondly, it's in that place when we gaze on his face that we start recognizing the parts of our lives that are out of place, that aren't what they're supposed to be. That when we look into the word of God, when we gaze on the face of God, He begins to lovingly and gently highlight and illuminate the things that aren't right. To the the point that he would say, are you going to go out in public like that? Are you going to display me in that way? And it's such a loving part of who he is. My whole life growing up in church, it was always such kind of a downer. Like, God is just... You know, he's just mad at you and he needs you to just kind of buck up and and pull yourself together. But we understand this, that God's love for us because he has made us in his image is this. I want the best for you. And I want you to reflect me well to the world around you. And so I'm going to give you everything that you need to be able to make the adjustments you need to make. It's why he gave the law. It's why he gave the prophets. It's why he gave the judges. It's why Jesus came into the world. 
All of this leading to the place where we could gaze intently upon the face of God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days. And then he says this, To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His temple. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Gazing on beautiful things affects our brains. It just does. If you ever stood at the Grand Canyon and looked out and it just takes your breath away, that you're overwhelmed by what you see. And there is a visceral, there is a, a, an emotional, there's a chemical reaction that happens in your body and in your brain when you look at something beautiful and go, I am in, I'm in awe. I'm in awe. That how much more than when we gaze on the beauty of who God is. It's not just a spiritual reaction that we have. That God wants us to respond down to the very fibers of our being. Our brains are amazing. Tell the person next to, to you, you have an amazing brain. All right. Our brains are phenomenal. God has made us, our brains, to work in a way that, that just, well, it's mind-blowing. Um, I, as I've understood more about brain chemistry and the way things work in our, our brains, and you've heard me talk about this before, I'm so stunned by how intentional God is. See, in Romans 12, Paul writes, the Apostle Paul, he writes these words, be transformed by the, the renewing of your mind. And he's not just saying think positive thoughts. What, what Paul's referencing, and Paul doesn't fully even understand this, but God does, is that the transformation of our lives happens when our brains are rewired, when our brains are transformed, when the neural pathways and the processes and the synapses that make us think the way we think are changed. Because that will then affect our emotions, that will affect what our body does, the decisions that we make and the way that we carry things out. I read this week about... Uh, a study that, that researchers have been doing in regard to change within the brain and change within our lives. So, so here's what they've discovered. Decision-making uses up energy. That when you're making a decision, your brain is having to work and it is burning up fuel, it's burning up calories, it's using up oxygen. And you know that moment when you're just concentrating and and you've been maybe been studying or working hard and having to focus, it's physically exhausting. People are like, well, you're just, you're, just, you're just using your brain. You shouldn't be so tired. No, our brain burns a large percentage of our energy. And so your brain is designed to uh, streamline the process. So your brain, what it'll do is categorize, it'll, it'll take decision-making and it will move decision-making from one part of your brain to another part of your brain in order to conserve energy. So things that you do over and over and over and over again, eventually you don't even think about it, right? We use that terminology. It just becomes routine or rote. Is your brain still making a decision? Yeah, absolutely. 
It's just that your brain has relocated the processing of that to a part of your brain that doesn't need to think about it as much or doesn't need to use the energy to the same degree. It's why when we'll ask, especially kids, we'll say, why did you do that? And they're like, I don't know. They, they literally do not know. It's because there is a part of their brain that just, it just kicks in. And we do it as adults as well. I just did. So here's the interesting thing. When we introduce new processes, when we introduce new ways of thinking, not only does it engage a part of our brain that has to work harder, our brain will tell us that we're making a mistake. If I am trying to introduce a way of thinking that contrasts something that's already been moved to that automatic system, when I try and make a decision or start thinking in a certain way, my brain will tell me you're making a mistake. That's an error. It will flag in our brain as an error. And we will default back to the thing that's easier, that uses less energy. That's why it's so hard to learn new things sometimes. That's why it's so hard to learn new disciplines. And there's this desire in us to do better things, to, 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 to make progress. But there are times where our brains are fighting against us. And Paul writes, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul says this in Romans, he says, why do I keep doing the things I'm not supposed to do and the things I'm supposed to do? I don't do those. And he just lets the frustration out. I, I'm, I'm over it. This is ridiculous. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I keep doing the things I'm not supposed to do. What Paul is describing is this brain process. It is this, this neuroscience discovery that's new that God's going, yeah, I knew that. I, I made you that way. He describes it in the book of Romans without even realizing what he is describing. Why do I do the things I'm not supposed to do? See, much of my church experience, church experience, especially growing up in the church, was this. This is what discipleship looked like for me growing up. Stop doing bad stuff and start doing good stuff. Anyone else? And if you do more good stuff than bad stuff, you're winning. And God is happy with you. But if you do more bad stuff than good stuff, you're not winning. And you should feel really guilty. Now, it was never said that overtly, but it was reinforced over and over and over. So in essence, what we're saying is, try harder. Try harder. And our brains are fighting us going, nope. That's an error. That's a mistake. That's not the way it's supposed to do, supposed to be. Do the easier thing. No, try harder. It's like an Avis commercial, right? We try harder. We never hear that on the slogan for the slogan for a church. Just try harder. <laughs> but we reinforce it in things that we do, and we feel that pressure. And what's really happening is that what, what, what's really at play here is our core motivation. What motivates you? What motivates you? I'm not motivated by try harder. Even if I know the thing that I try harder to do will be a positive thing. There was a, a study that was done 
And they found that 90% of people, when, when told or given a diagnosis along the lines of, if you don't stop doing this, you're going to die. Like that kind of level of, you have it within your power to make the change. If you don't stop doing this, you're going to die within you know, a, a certain amount of time. 90% of people will initially make the changes, but then eventually revert back and not actually make the changes. 90%, only 10% of people will actually make the changes to save their lives. Why? Because our brains are broken. Our brains need healing. Our brains need something else to aim at. Something other than don't do bad stuff, do good stuff. See, we've got to move from behavior to identity. Why does God tell us we're made in his image? Not so that we can perform better. It's so that we can rest in our, our identity in who we are in him. Do you see the difference? When I know who God is and I understand who I am in light of who he is and who he has made me to be, all of that pressure to try harder just kind of goes out the window. And now my identity is wrapped up in him. I am his son. I am his daughter. I am loved. I am precious. I am valued. And I get to reflect the picture, the, the, the image of my father here on earth. Now, Paul, like Paul, we go, hey, sometimes I'm doing really well at that, and sometimes I don't. But that's where God introduces this incredible word, grace. Yes. Grace. One of our values at church, at Thrive Church, is grace extended. And I've realized, as I've been using it in, in with, within our pastoral team and our leadership team, we've been using this term grace extended, and I realized we've slipped in our usage because it's come to mean more like, well, just cut people slack, give them a break. That's not grace. That's not grace. That God's grace to us is, I know you're going to make a mistake. I know you're not perfect, but I love you anyway. In fact, Jesus extended grace to us when he died on the cross. So grace is sacrificial. When I understand that I am loved with a sacrificial love, that Jesus gave everything for me so that I can know him and he can know me and I can know the Father and my identity can be restored, that's a different kind of motivation. Would you agree? The thing is we have to make the shift we have to start thinking differently about who we are. And so discipleship is not about behavior. It's about our identity, understanding who we are. Why is asking the question, who is God, important? Because when we know who God is, we'll understand who we are. And we're not here to perform a task. We're here to have a relationship. We're here to know him and to be known by him. To press into that. See, Paul had a revelation of this in his life. He's walking along, along the road on his way to persecute some more Christians. And Jesus reveals himself to Paul. And Paul is blinded and he goes through a process where he has to wait. And Jesus speaks to him and, and, and Paul says, who are you? Jesus says, I'm, I'm, 
Jesus, I'm the one that you're persecuting. And so Paul emerges from that time transformed and, and, and he gives his life to God and there's a radical transformation in Paul's life. And we read about this in Philippians 3, which was in our reading this week. Paul writes this, he says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I got you beat out. When it comes to performance, Paul was the king. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for, the, for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, some of that might not mean anything to you, but what in essence Paul is saying is like, I've done everything that I was supposed to do and I've excelled in it. And then he says this. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Here's Paul, who had everything going for him. He was at the top of the heap, top dog. And he has an encounter with Jesus, a revelation of who God is, that transforms his life, where he now regards the things that were his, like his pedigree, the things he could boast about and brag about, and he goes, all of it is just garbage in comparison to knowing Jesus. I believe God is calling us as his sons and daughters to evaluate what are the things that we boast about and go, oh, I'm this and I'm that and I have this and I have that. And to realize, you know what, it's all garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. Why? So we can perform better? No, so we can love him more and be loved by him so that we can draw closer, so we can gaze into his face. I want to know Christ, he writes in verse 10. I want to know Christ. I want to know him, not, not just in the victories. I want to know him in his death, and his, in his resurrection, and in his suffering. Jesus, I just want to know every bit and every part of who you are. Jesus says in John 10, 14 through 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Do you see the reflection? I know my sheep and my sheep know me. This is Jesus speaking about us. And he goes, by the way, I also know my Father and my Father knows me. And so there's this reflection of who Jesus is in light of who the Father is. And what he's saying is because I know the Father and he knows me, and I know you and you know me, you can know the Father. And he restores our identity. He restores that relationship. He is a knowable God. He is a knowable Father. I'll close with this. Paul and Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. 
a passage that we quote quite often when there's tragic circumstances. Paul writes this, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to, to be conformed to what? To the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And so God says, listen, this is not just a verse that I gave you so that you can pat people on the back and quote something and then feel better about yourself. This passage has deep meaning. It has deep meaning to who we are as followers of Jesus. I'm not saying don't quote this passage to people. Just use it wisely. It goes back to the mourn with people who mourn. Be aware of how we're impacting lives. But what God is saying is this. If you will gaze upon my face, you will come to understand that nothing in your life is wasted. The highs and the lows, the good and the bad, the things that are painful, because we still live in a broken world. We see through a glass dimly. We don't understand fully. He does. He does. That, that, that God sees death differently to the way we see death. We're, we're limited in our understanding. He understands pain in a different way than we understand pain. Paul says, I want to know Christ in his suffering. When last did you pray that prayer? Uh, it, Let's be honest, most of our, our Western Christian approach is God take suffering away from me and make my life better. And Paul says, no, no, I had the better life and it's garbage. Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know your death and your resurrection and I even want to know you in your suffering. That nothing in our lives is lost to him. Then all things work together for the good. Why? Because God is conforming us to the image of his son Jesus, to his likeness. And so we go from Imago Day in the Garden of Eden to Imago Christi in the New Testament. Where God says, you couldn't look like me because of sin, so I made a way. So now you look like Jesus, and Jesus looks like me, and I restore what was lost. And that's who you are. That's who you are. That's your identity. And can I tell you, there is a part of me that yearns, that longs, that wishes that I would have heard that when I was 12 years old. When I was at the part of my life when I started understanding this whole Christian thing where I'm like, just don't do bad stuff, do good stuff. So I had to hide all the bad stuff and walk in shame and not receive the grace of God. Now, is there a place for us to be disciplined? Absolutely. Is there a place for us to make sure that we're making wise choices and living according to the word of God? Absolutely, but that's not the starting point. It doesn't earn us anything. Whatever you think you need to earn, you already have it. Can I encourage you? We, all, we already established this. You have a mirror in your home. That when you look into that mirror, when you see your face looking back at you, would you remind yourself that you're made in the image of God? That's right. 
that you are precious, that you are valuable, that you are loved, that He has given you purpose, and that He wants you to know Him in ways, deeper ways than you ever dreamed or imagined were possible. That does something in my heart. I can echo Paul's prayer and his cry, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. We stand together as we close. Jesus, this is impossible without you. Even as we broke bread today, Lord, and we drank of the cup, remembering what you did for us 2,000 years ago. We give you praise. Would you just speak praise to the Lord right now? Would you just thank him for what he's done for you? Thank you, Jesus. We honor you and we praise your holy name. Father God, I pray healing over this body, over this congregation. And God, I speak specifically, I ask specifically for the healing and the transformation of our minds. Lord, I thank you that when you bore those stripes and, 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 and received those bruises and that wounding, and you hung on that cross, you did it to speak to and address every dimension of need that we have as human beings. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, and even mentally in our thinking. And so, Lord, would you bring healing? I pray even for those right now, Lord, where this is stirring maybe some deep things. Holy Spirit, would you bring your peace? Would you bring grace to bear? I pray, Lord, just a covering over our hearts and minds, Lord, that you would guard our minds in Christ, that the enemy would have no place to bring doubt or fear or discouragement or shame in the name of Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that we are loved with an everlasting love. And God, I thank you that you are knowable, that you have made yourself known and that we can know you. God, this year, this week, today, I pray that we would see you more clearly and receive from you all that you have in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go today. Have a wonderful afternoon. If you hang out and watch the game, enjoying being with family and friends, we look forward to seeing you next week.